0: This is Race Capital, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy.
1: I'm from the.
2: Hey y'all, it's me, Kalia Harris. And today on Race Capital, we are doing a rerun. Yeah, you heard me right, a rerun of an episode from last year with our host, Chelsea Higgs-Wise, and comrade Rebecca Keel, along with Ashley Shapiro from Justice Forward, Virginia, and then Commonwealth's Attorney candidate, Colette McEachin, and her opponent, Alex Taylor Jr. Spoiler alert, this episode has a lot of empty words and broken promises, but we don't need to tell you that. You can hear it straight from Colette McEachin herself listen in now to race capital
0: this morning we've got with us rebecca keel good morning And a really cool episode, right, Kat? Yeah, for sure. So today on the show, we've got Commonwealth Attorney candidates, Colette McKeachin, and Alex Taylor, who is an attorney here
3: in Richmond. Colette McKeachin, of course, we know, took over for Michael Herring after he left for a better paying job back in May. And now these two
0: will face off in August. Yep. August 8th from 6 to 730, all Richmond voters have a chance to vote if you are signing You are voting with the Democratic Party So August 8th from 6 to 7.30 And then August 10th from 10.30 to 1.30 You have a chance to vote On both days you can vote either at the main branch Richmond Public Library Or 4100 Hall Street Road The Southside Community Services Center And we're going to jump right into these interviews (music) y'all Hey, so we have a super special episode with some amazing people. I'm going to let them go around and introduce themselves. My extra co-host for the day, who I got here beside me.
3: Hey, Chelsea. So I am Rebecca Keel. I'm an intersectional community organizer, um, member of Southerners on New Ground, and policy director for the new nonprofit Marijuana Justice Virginia. Good to be here this morning.
0: Thanks for being here. Rebecca is my comrade in justice. So when we had this conversation, I was like, I definitely need you beside me from a community lens and conversation. So thanks for being here. Up next.
4: I'm Ashley Shapiro. I'm a public defender here in the city of Richmond. um, And I'm also representing Justice Forward Virginia, which is a PAC that's focusing on criminal justice reform and racial justice issues throughout the state.
0: What's a PAC, Ashley?
4: A political action committee. So we're nonpartisan. Uh, We do support specific candidates, but we also are mainly concerned with legislation and changing the face of Virginia and with regards to criminal justice.
0: Okay, so you all put money and energy behind different pieces of legislation that matter to you all?
4: Yes, we lobby heavily. We form relationships with legislators and try to get various pieces of legislation passed and kill pieces of legislation that we think are particularly egregious for either criminal defendants or minorities, or typically both.
0: And who makes up a a large part of your pack? Who's involved?
4: It's almost all entirely defense attorneys, mostly public defenders. Wow.
0: And you guys are new to Richmond, or how long you guys been around?
4: We've been around as a pack for about two and a half years now, and we've been in Richmond we just launched in May.
0: Welcome to Richmond. I don't know if you've heard, but it's the former capital of the Confederacy. I did know that. Okay, okay. Well, thanks, Ashley, for being here.
1: Thank you. All right. I'm Alex Taylor. Hi, Alex. I'm in Hi. private practice. I've represented defendants across Virginia, mostly in Richmond area, uh, for about nine years as a defense attorney, and I am a candidate for the Richmond Commonwealth attorney.
0: Nice. Thank you so much for being here. This is our first time meeting, actually, so I'm excited to learn more about you.
5: Hey, good morning, Chelsea. Good morning, everyone. My name is Colette Wallace McEachin. I am also a candidate for the Richmond Commonwealth Attorney's Office. And I'm currently the interim Commonwealth Attorney since the former Commonwealth, Mike Herring, resigned. And it's very um, happy to be with you all this morning.
0: Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. So we're going to go ahead and get started. And Rebecca's got some questions. I've got some questions. But we really like to have conversations. So as things come up, feel free to jump in, especially Ashley. I want you to be able to come in with comments or questions. And maybe we'll come to you as well with our own questions of helping navigate some things. But yeah,
3: let's go ahead and get started. So for our listeners, I think it'd be important to talk about really what is the role and the duties of a Commonwealth's attorney. So what is the position y'all are running for? (laughs)
1: Well, um, I'm sure Colette would agree. We are in charge of prosecuting individuals who commit felonies and uh, misdemeanors, depending on what misdemeanors they are, um, in the city of Richmond. And we have a lot of discretion. What people don't know is, even though a person may be charged with a certain crime, we have the discretion of whether to prosecute that crime any further, whether it's in general district court or circuit court. And then uh, the The Commonwealth Attorney supervises all the other assistant Commonwealth Attorneys and deputy Commonwealth Attorneys that are within the offices in three different courts. The Juvenile Court, General District Court in uh, South Richmond, and then we also have um, General District and Circuit Court in North Richmond at the John Marshall Court Building.
5: So what I would add, and all that's uh, accurate, Uh, what I would also say is right now we have about 40 attorneys in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, and it's predominantly female
0: Mm, yes, women. I think most
5: people, which I think most people are surprised to hear <laughs> because across the country, 75% of most local prosecutors are white males. Wow. And that is not the case in the city of Richmond. And obviously, um, David Hicks, who is now a judge, used to be Commonwealth's attorney, and he's a black male. He was followed by Michael Herring, uh, who was Commonwealth's attorney, another black male. And so um, Richmond has been unusual in that for the past 25 years. The Commonwealth's attorney has been an African American male, and of course, now I'm the interim mm-hmm. as an African American female. So
0: you mentioned that there are many women. Is it majority white women? Majority women of color? Um, it's hmm, it's probably majority white women. Okay, uh,
5: there are certainly. I'm, I'm actually going through the the attorneys in the office. Mm-hmm. Um, I think right now there is at least one African American in each of the Mm courthouses uh mm -hmm. maybe not in juvenile court because um someone just left. So,
0: And you mentioned that our landscape looks a little different than many other people's. And I'm not so sure about the Commonwealth attorney position, but I always like to bring people's history reminder back to 1977 when we had the very first historically Black city council here in Richmond. And that was a big historic shift in politics here in the city of Richmond, where there was a lot of people power and especially Black elected official power in that time area. And we've been able to move and see different administrations, educate social services, very much led by people of color, black people here in Richmond. And I'm not really sure about the Commonwealth attorney position there. I had to look more about that. Well, so the Commonwealth attorney is a
5: constitutional position. And what that means is if you look at the Virginia Constitution, it's one of four offices that is um, actually specified in the Constitution, along with treasurer, the mm-hmm. sheriff, Uh, the clerk of court. And so we have a kind of unique position in that we are relatively autonomous. And as Alex said, have a lot of discretion Mm -hmm. as to which cases to prosecute. Uh, My office right now is very interested in felony reduction and felony avoidance. And that is where we are headed so that uh, people of color um, are not saddled with felony convictions.
0: Ashley, I want to bring you in this conversation. Anything to this particular position that you would add for a Commonwealth attorney?
4: I think ethically speaking, Commonwealth attorneys have an additional duty that's very important and their ethical bounds to not go forward with cases, for example, where there's not probable cause or not succumb to when police are very adamant about a case, but they violated the Constitution in some way. It is a constitutional position. It's a very important position with an immense amount of discretion, and it is their job to use that discretion to enforce the Constitution and to protect people of color and to protect indigent clients specifically who don't have any power in our society and are often taken advantage of by the police and to be not just working lockstep with the police, but actually as a check against them when they do act outside of their constitutional bounds.
0: Right. And I like that you mentioned the power and in, in giving power back to black and brown communities, because as I was listening to the description of the position, I just felt like, wow, this is a lot of power. And then I also really like that you brought up the fact that the Commonwealth of attorney is very different and separate from the police department, right? And sometimes just talking to people and constituents and residents, they don't realize that there is a difference. They don't work together. And that's a myth that we need to just start to distinguish as well so that we can hold different positions accountable, as well as, as see how these positions can work for the people and work for justice.
5: So, so yes, it is a very powerful position, but it is also a position um, that is restricted by one, our ethical duties, as Ashley referred to. Um, Anyone who goes outside of their uh, ethical bounds uh, is going to be sanctioned uh, by the um, bar Mm -hmm. and with the possibility of losing your license. Mm -hmm. And so that is uh, obviously a restriction. And then we are also watched by the community. I mean, a lot of the um, interactions and a lot of the charges uh, that are brought are initiated by someone in the community calling the police Mm -hmm. and so the police Becky Becky calling the police Becky calling the police and so um you know the police respond and they can either tell Becky if it was a misdemeanor that didn't happen in their presence um you know, that she needs to go down to the magistrate's office and take out the charge. If it's okay. a serious enough charge, a felony, the police may take out the charge. But then we still need the community, if they want to go forward, to come forward as witnesses. And so we are working as a voice for the people. We are working as a voice for those who feel they have been victimized by someone else. And when there is an issue with police conduct, whether it's the stop, the search, the seizure, um, the behavior, uh, the conduct towards the the people in the community, we address that with the police officer Mm -hmm. and we address that with the police officer's superiors. But to your point, Chelsea, Uh, The Commonwealth Attorney's Office is a separate entity from the police department. We are not on the street, not out on the street when the police arrest people. Uh, We only hear about it after the fact. And so we can sometimes only fix things after the fact. And Mm -hmm. I I hope your listeners will will appreciate that if there is a problem with police conduct, if they bring it to our attention, we will address it. But we don't have any final authority over the police.
1: Gotcha. They have a role as far as looking over the investigation that's done um, on the police officer. But if the police officer's conduct is egregious, then we may end up having to prosecute that police officer, which is evidence of her point in that they are separate entities.
3: Can
4: I ask the question of, if and Ms. McEachin might have a better idea about this, how often police officers have actually been prosecuted in the city of Richmond? I was just going to ask that, (laughs) Ashley. I was like, and what does egregious
0: mean? Like, what does it take to be egregious?
5: Uh, so I don't know the exact number, but I will say it is not unusual for police officers to be prosecuted by our office. And, um, prosecution, uh, can take place usually when something is, what is egregious.
0: Cause they've never, you've never prosecuted on, have you ever prosecuted an officer for a firearm, um, for shooting, someone? for shooting someone? Not that I'm aware of. I don't think so. I think that was something that during the Marcus David Peters advocacy, we could notice with Mike Herring's office, at least for his particular term, that it was never based on a shooting. I'm not going to quote that, but that was something that we do remember. But I'm sorry, I cut you off. So anything else? What what could be classified as egregious?
1: Shooting an unarmed man. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, okay.
1: No probable cause or with no threat or danger to the police officer.
0: Gotcha. So let me I mean, since we're here and I know we've got some other really good questions that because we like to educate the audience, too. That's why we, we asked that question first about what the position does. But since we're here and you brought up such an interesting, specific example, I would love to hear, Alex, your take on the Marcus David Peters incident and how you would have handled that as a Commonwealth attorney. Just knowing the the details that we do know as a public person that he was unarmed and from your point of view, was that a justified shooting?
1: I don't know enough about the facts of that case.
0: Right. From what we can all see and and watch and read... And I assume that you've done some background work on that because you want to take this position. I would hope that was a huge, that was a huge <laughs> case and, and something important for the people. So I hope that that's something that you've looked into enough to be able to see the, the history, what was out there in the public eye, that he was unarmed, that the police officer had identified that he was suffering from a mental health disorder. He was naked and it was been going on for a while. That officer was trained in CIT for de-escalation. Was that a justified shooting?
1: I know the, the facts... Um, uh, uh, come out and scream at you that uh, this is a situation where it looks on its face as if it may not have been okay justified shooting. But I have not personally looked at all the facts, and I know how these things go. I mean, I was a senior prosecutor for a number of years with mm-hmm. Colette when we were in the office at the same time, and um, and.
0: So your first response is to say, it looks like it could be, but you're not yes, sure. Yeah, I, I
1: cannot. Right?
0: Because he was suffering mental health. And, and, and I think many caseworkers, and especially, so I'm a social worker, a clinical social worker. I've right. been in these communities with naked, peop- with naked people, appearing very aggressive and threatening, right. you know, saying these very verbal threats. Right. But I've also also been trained in a physical de-escalation that these officers have also been trained in. But they have the authority in their training to always go back to shooting first and not actually relying on the CIT training. The CIT training is the crisis intervention training, which is that physical de-escalation. Even though they are trained in that, they do not actually have to follow that. It's only recommended. And that's why he ended up shooting and releasing his pistol that day is because he went back to his academy training rather than sticking to the crisis intervention training. And I I have to disagree with
5: you because it's my
0: understanding
5: that uh, he deployed his taser and the taser...
0: Uh, right. Did not even work or catch prior to the taser piece. There are other de-escalation pieces yeah. of that that he did not even try or attempt to use. I
5: I I'm going to remain silent on that point. I I don't know that that's the case.
0: I'm telling you that I know the training for CIT and RBHA and absolutely there are physical restraints that you do not need an actual weapon for that is used and taught to these officers to take them down and he never attempted to do those and I guess that's maybe because he was such a physical a threat because of the energy and the adrenaline and people describing him as a super strong being in that moment and that's why he maybe felt like he needed to use a taser or some type of weapon but I do want to make it very clear that these officers have other techniques and tools in their tool belt that they are Taught to physically de-escalate people that do not involve weapons. And
1: sometimes that works. I had a case last week, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, um, where a young man was charged with um, DUI. He was running around naked, acting crazy, um, but he was not shot.
0: Mm-hmm. I, mean, I
1: just represented him. I had, right. I had, I had, I had him, his mother, right. some other relatives and So court. what happened
0: there? How did, how did they de-escalate the, case, the situation? Um, when He was acting crazy they were able to restrain I wouldn't say
1: him. That, but yeah. they were able to restrain him. they didn't shoot him
0: exactly so a physical restraint
1: if I recall correctly tasers may have been used, yeah, but they did not um shoot him great um, and um he's alive today because of that right the fact they didn't use a lethal weapon exactly and last Thursday. His even his DUI charges were prize because when they looked at the lab results, um, they found no drugs, mm-hmm. no alcohol in his system. He literally had a mental health breakdown, right. and was this close, this close, right, to have been to be one of the victims that we often hear about right the the Marcus
0: David Peters yeah and a justified shooting with no justice of often saying that the officer was in fear of his life and therefore when he could have just used a physical de-escalation and a physical restraint that we are all given that that piece too. And I also want to point out something you said that the person, an example you just had, did not have any drugs or alcohol in their system. I want to also be clear that when we're talking about mental health, substance use and abuse and being under the influence of substances is also part of mental health. And when we talk about opiates and that sort of thing, we're always talking about mental health there. So when we're also talking about when people are suffering and what's in their system, it it could still absolutely be mental health breaks, even if they're substance induced. Ashley, you want to jump in on this conversation at all?
4: I do. Yes. I will say I've only been in the Richmond Public Defender's Office for seven months, and I've seen at least two egregious uses of force that were investigated by the police department, given no recourse from the police department, despite a short period of leave, and then invested by the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, which declined to prosecute. One is where a client who was having a bit of a mental health break, he called the police officer name, and he decked him in the face, and just straight up pulled back and punched him in the face.
0: Who? Who? punched too in the face a
4: police officer punched the client in the face and we have it on body cam and that they declined to prosecute that case i had another case where an officer the other officers testified and you could see it on body cam that the client was being held down by i think four other officers and this officer deployed his taser there was a six-month investigation six months later my client came and he was tased while being held down and this is in Richmond, actually yes both times that case was de- that same officer who was put on administrative leave for holding people down and tasing them. So my clients okay. were not shot okay. and they survived. Thank God. But they were repeatedly tased over the period of about 10 minutes with high electric voltage while being held down by police officers. And those were declined to be prosecuted. So while in the news we see the people who are shot and killed, there are plenty of uses of force on the street that are investigated by the police that are deemed to be. In this case, they said it was probably an inap- inappropriate use of force, but not worth firing him over. Referred to the Commonwealth attorney's office. Who then declined to prosecute? So there are absolutely uses of force that don't make the news, that don't involve people dying, that need to be addressed and need to be taken seriously.
5: How would you address them? What
0: What What is your suggestion?
4: I think if you turn around and punch someone in the face, that's an assault. That person was not coming at because,
0: that? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, Ashley, but the, the reason why these aren't egregious, probably, in my eyes, just looking at data sometimes and the way Richmond police officers is coming is that these uses of force are sanctioned by the police. Therefore, they are allowed to be used in the use of force realm. This is a lot of the defense I'm hearing from the police officers and, and and that they're allowed to do these things and not necessarily report all of these because they're in the scope of what is allowed in a use of force for the police officers.
4: And I think I cannot imagine being in the field, the stressors that are in the field, having everything happen so quickly. I understand that, that in that moment, but they do have crisis intervention training. Yes. And having a person yell a name at you and punching them in the face is an assault and battery. That is not a use of police force. There were many other officers on the scene. He wasn't being restrained.
0: That's just an assault and battery. I'm sorry, I cut you off. I think you were going to say something. No, no, no. I was just
4: wondering if
5: Ashley was going towards, I know that there are a lot of communities that have a uh, independent civilian review board of police. Um, Definitely. That. That, and so I thought that's maybe where Ashley was going.
0: Well, I'd like for you to answer the question that you asked Ashley. I mean, in, under your administration, and I guess you're you're the acting now. So would any of this change, I guess, if you were elected? Because that seems pretty egregious to me. So I'm asking. Yeah.
5: yeah. So so I would I would give. um, with, Let me put it this way. Mm-hmm. I would want to look at every Piece of the investigation. Look at the body worn camera video, which works. I think Ashley would agree for both sides or against Absolutely. both sides, depending. And and to the point where, if uh, someone who is in authority, who is armed, um, strikes someone who doesn't need to be hit to be controlled or to maintain community safety, then. That's a problem.
0: I'll tell you right now, That's there's no need to ever hit anyone in the face based on crisis and intervention training. So there's never a reason to punch someone in the face. That's like literally not a thing. I so, agree. I agree. Yeah. So I agree. I-
3: this conversation really makes me think about community relations between Richmonders, people who may get caught up in the criminal justice system, the relationship between folks and the Commonwealth Attorney's Office, and it makes me think of, like, the trust that we have for y'all to prosecute justly, fairly, correctly. And, you know, thinking about Marcus David Peters and how all that played out, there was trust broken between the community and the Office of the Commonwealth Attorney. My question is, what is, like, the culture of the office? What's working? What needs to shift? And what can you do, if elected, to make that shift real? So I will say that the culture of the office right now is,
5: first and foremost, to be a voice for victims of crimes. Um, That's our main goal. That is what we are supposed to do is uh, make sure that people who have been harmed by others have their day in court and have an attorney to give voice to their concerns. And that is what we all care about. We all care about investigating our cases thoroughly. We all care about making sure that the evidence that we have to bring into court is fair and just, that we give the discovery that we're supposed to give to public defenders and to criminal, uh, private criminal defense attorneys so that everybody is playing on an equal field. Obviously, they have their job. And when I say they, I'm talking about criminal defense attorneys, whether in the public defender's office, which is one of the best public defender offices in the state, or a private criminal defense attorney, their job is to minimize or get the defendant off. That's their job. My job as a Commonwealth attorney is to represent, not represent, but to, to be the voice for the victim so that their issue, whether it was assault, domestic abuse, child endangerment, grand larceny, robbery, uh, aggravated malicious wounding, to make sure that they have their day in court.
0: So something I want to talk about about who we're serving and we want to I want to go back all the way to something that was said of the caller. Right. That's when we that's where we start. We start with the caller that says, hey, there's a crime happening. I need help and support. And this is the same thing I heard from the police the other day at the public safety committee is the caller. I want to just bring something back to what Rebecca just said about who this caller probably is and who this probably isn't who probably is not calling the police, who's not feeling like the trust is there enough to reach out and call the police. And if they're not calling the police, let's remember, that means that their voice is not heard. That means that we're not hearing from a lot of people that really do need a defense, that need someone else to prosecute based on the egregious... oppressions and and a lot of the violence that's happening within their own systems. So I just want to make that really clear too of like when we're talking about who we're serving, remembering who we're not serving and like who's not included in the room in this conversation. And that really puts me a lot to Black women. And here in the city of Richmond, we talk a lot about gun violence. We talk a lot about violence in the community. And unfortunately, so much violence against our Black youth. It's just about what's happening in our communities with black women. And that's something I talk about a lot on the show. So this might not be a conversation that's brought up in the CA's voice forums many times, but I want to bring it to the the table, especially just because in this realm of politics, I'm just concerned on our own culture of politics here and black women's voices here. So that goes all the way from the violence against black women, how that's prosecuted domestic violence. I know there's plenty of complaints here in the city of Richmond, as well as just for me too, what is the culture that we're in for for black women and for politics as you all are running right now in the CA and the CA world because I'm I'm looking at Virginia and I'm thinking about Doug Wilder he was just founded for consent like kissing someone without consent I'm thinking about Justin just- Fairfax Justin Fairfax, thank you. Being accused by two black women of sexual assault. I'm thinking about Joe Morrissey, that has a, a history of young black women. And I'm just thinking about what is the place and what have, what are you all's view on black women in, in this political realm and and that voice and just the politics of this. Yes. So
5: so I first of all, black women are the strongest people on earth. Yes. And we are the strongest force on earth. And I am definite in saying that black women don't take a lot of crap from anybody mm-hmm. and so we now have a um, computer program okay. that we are using in the commonwealth attorney's office to break out demographic um information Ooh. and so we just started the program great um and so hopefully you know in is this a year... the same
0: one that the police are using no okay. totally different that's totally what it's called
5: pbk prosecution by carpel so we have just started using that program and entering the data, but the point of that is that we will be able to break out who is being charged yeah. with what crimes and what the disposition of those crimes is, right. which I know your listeners are you know, interested in that type of demographic uh, information as we should all be. But to, back to your specific point, if you went down to the Richmond Juvenile and Domestic Relations Court any day, it is filled with black women yep. and their children. Yep. At, primarily as victims. Sometimes it's, you know, two mothers fighting over something their kids did at school that had they brought back to the community. Um, a lot of times, sadly, it is women who, because of their own trauma, initially bring a case against the boyfriend or the father of their child and then, you know, just are not at the point mentally where they can go forward. Right. But Looking at those cases in juvenile domestic relations court, and then Ashley, I think, will agree with me, if you go into any of the general district courts, uh, certainly, which is where we have the majority of our um, cases filled, filled with African American women, both as victims and sometimes as defendants. So um, I want to say that. Black women are not shy about calling the police when they want the police to take care of an issue that they feel is a threat to them or their family.
0: Do you think that black women in Richmond would say their voice is heard just as loudly as other callers in those situations, even if they're willing to go for the police? That's really the point of my question, right? Because and that's why I bring up the big cases of like Doug and Joe and and them is because black women voices aren't heard or respected in a lot of the times. So all the way down to your office as well. Is that something that I think black women will say that they're heard and respected in these courtrooms? I think so. I I think so.
4: I can't say that I've seen a difference yet in sort of white female victims versus black female victims. I I will say there is sometimes a bit of a different way just because the vernacular that's used and the way that people speak is different. And I mm-hmm. do think police speak differently with black women. But my bigger concern is that my client, who's a black female, was probably a victim of some crime. As Colette mentioned, they also are very often victims of their own significant trauma. And I'd like to ask both Alex and Colette what you would do as the Commonwealth attorney to address the fact that even if you say that your obligation is to victims, defendants who are also victims and defendants who have that kind of trauma, and what you would do as a Commonwealth attorney to address that in a dispositional setting or in a criminal setting, even if that person's on the other side of the table, instead of the person making the call.
5: So I think what we want to do, what we have done, and what we will continue to do is use a very evidence-based, trauma-informed prosecution model that is community-centered. And so what that all means is that if you have a situation where, let's say it's, it's a a, two black women um one has charged the other with assault over um baby mama drama just to, to
2: this is the worst like
0: example we could think of well, <laughs> let's do another okay, one do that another doesn't way. sound so terrible on black women right. let's talk about black women being a victim of a black man
2: you are listening to race capital on W R I R L 97.3 richmond independent radio And you're listening to a rerun of our episode from last year where our host Chelsea Higgs Wise talks with comrade Rebecca Keel, with then candidate for Commonwealth's attorney, Colette McKeachin. Stay tuned here on Race Capital.
5: Oh, so okay, so you don't want a black woman versus black woman. Because that was I, Ashley's that was Ashley's example about if I have a black okay. female Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Right? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Ahead, yeah. I mean, I'm happy Sorry. to deal with it. No, but, I understand. Yeah. Okay. I I was trying to make it equal on both sides. I we appreciate a... that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. So we have we have a we have an African American woman on both sides. I'm representing the victim who was assaulted or had her door kicked in because somebody was upset. Ashley is representing the defendant who kicked in the door or assaulted the woman or keyed her car. And what I would try to do and what the attorneys in my office will do is say, what's the problem here? Is this a problem? Is this a a one-off situation? And if it's a one-off situation, then let's, find that the evidence is sufficient for guilt, but instead of finding, instead of actually finding you guilty, let's take it under advisement for six months. If there are no other issues between the two of you all for six months, then the case will be dismissed. And so everybody gets their day in court. The judge has heard the evidence, but especially if Ashley's client does not have a criminal record, this is not the case to set, to to put a criminal record on somebody. But what about if
4: it's a so-called victimless crime? What if because of her trauma? She now has drugs and she's been accosted by the police pulled over mainly because she's a black woman in a nice car, let's say, and drugs are found on her, and she has a trauma background, and there's she doesn't have a clean criminal record. She's made mistakes, but she is the victim of the system. Maybe she's the victim of domestic violence, child abuse when she was a child, which happens all the time, and it's not you representing the victim in that case. It's a drug case, or maybe it's a larceny case, which also goes with you know drug abuse. They're, they go hand in hand.
5: And there would be a, vic- a victim in, the in a larceny case. a larceny,
4: yes, but it's not a violent crime. It's not Agreed. You know, a physical victim in that Agreed. way. Agreed. How would either of you address that person's personal history? They don't have a clean record, but they are the victim of trauma. And are they willing
5: to deal with their trauma? Are they are, are they willing to go to the services that we suggest they go to? Usually people are. They want help. And we're there to help them. I'd love to hear Alex. from Alex
1: on this one. Well, uh, I would totally agree. you got to address the her underlying issues. Um, in this case, it sounds like drug use now. That's gotta be addressed. And we cut this program called the first offender program, which which would be appropriate, I think, for her, even if she's now in simple possession of drugs, she the case would be taken on advisement. As long as she participate in the program, the charge would be dismissed. Now, in going back a little bit, in the domestic uh, well, the the assault and batter situation between where the lady kicks down in the door and goes inside and has this altercation with this other lady. As Colette says, in in cases like that, the case can be taken under advisement. But what's also important is if that if the person, the defendant, has some. Uh, issues in dealing and coping with anger, one of the best things we could do for that person, of course, as you know, is that person gets some anger management counseling. And and then once they evaluate her for that, they may find that she also has some mental health issues uh, in addition to being able to cope with her anger. So there are uh, different programs that we can make available to these defendants so that the ultimate result is, in some cases, if they don't have a record, no record Because as Colette mentioned earlier, the last thing we want to do is put a felony conviction. And and breaking into somebody's house, that's a big felony. That's class two, if I recall correctly. And uh, that's the last thing we want, that person to have a felony record for the rest of their life. And misdemeanors, that stays with you the rest of your life as well. Mm -hmm. The average citizen does not know that. And unless, unless you come up with evidence you didn't do the misdemeanor, it stays on your record. So we don't want folks to have these things hanging on their head if, they, if we can avoid it. And I'm speaking back as, as if I was the prosecutor, a prosecutor all over again. But we don't want that if we can avoid it. We, we agree on that.
0: We do. And we do. I know, it's, I feel like we hadn't heard your voice in a while, Alex. So I want to give you a chance to comment on anything else that we'd said in, in the past. And there were some, the egregious examples I know that we've mentioned. I just wanted to ask if that was something that you wanted to comment on about the police punching people in the face or anything.
1: As a uh, former soldier for over 30 years, I know things can get out of hand real quick, uh, when there are altercations uh, between uh, law enforcement uh, and individuals involved in uh, or allegedly involved in crimes, but I I'm having trouble too finding justification for punching someone in, in mm-hmm. the
0: face. Your face was all scrunched up when Ashley was telling us. I was like, oh,
1: <laughs> Alex looks concerned. <laughs> I'm very concerned about everything that I.
0: So yeah. and then catching up before we move on. Also, any comments about black women?
1: well I, I agree. I just had this is going to sound a little corny, but I just had a conversation with my wife talking about my mother mm-hmm. And I said, and I reflected upon my mother uh and other women in my life, and without question, you all are the strongest you're not You're not known for your physical strength, but most
5: <laughs> whoa whoa
1: whoa
2: whoa whoa whoa. <laughs> most, whoa 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 most are
1: not known for their physical strength. I'm just being honest here <laughs> go ahead um. But your you're in a inter- room full of fams. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, yeah. No, all the athletes off the top of my head. Your inner strength, I think, surpasses any human being I know. So I, I agree. There's no being stronger uh, on earth uh, emotionally um, uh, than a than a, than a woman.
0: Cool, cool. There is a rumor going around that Joe Morrissey is endorsing your campaign. Is that true?
1: He has been very supportive of me, and you know he's going to be our next senator.
0: I am in his district. I'm very aware. Yes. Right. Yes. And and how do you feel about that?
1: How do I feel about him uh, supporting my campaign? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm appreciative of the fact that he's supporting my campaign. But let me explain why. Okay. He has the experience of being a uh, prosecutor. Okay. He has the experience of being a successful politician, too. Let's just focus on those two things. I've been a prosecutor, yes, but not the Commonwealth attorney he has. I've never ever been involved in politics. And so I take from him the uh, lessons, if you will, that he provides to me on those two eras. Okay. In, in those two areas, excuse me. Okay. Um. So, yes, I'm, I'm appreciative of that. And I know, I know I'm sitting in a room with some very nice ladies, and I know <laughs> what right. your focus is on. I'm not the type of person to... To who would have perhaps engaged in some of the same uh, activities that I hope not. That you (laughs) You need to say that more clearly, sir. Because many of those Uh. activities were illegal.
3: (laughs) And do you think that you can understand? Do you think that you can divorce exactly his
0: work as a politician from his actions as having slept with a minor?
1: Oh, I, I, as, I, as a I person have... you
0: can you're willing to allow those things to be separated and accept his support. You're willing to overlook the fact that he committed these actions okay, you know he did this, but he's a great politician and a good lawyer so therefore you're willing to accept his support
1: I'm not I'm not overlooking anything. I'm utilizing the information he's given to me so that I can uh, increase my chances of being in a, in a better position. To be Richmond's next Commonwealth Attorney, I, I've I've interacted with Joe and his now wife, and I've I've, and I've seen his kids, and I mean, and I've met the his mother-in-law, and and I haven't seen a happier family working to, um, when they're together. I've gone to Crusade for voters' meetings, and they're present.
0: Well, we know the Crusade is a huge Joe fan, right? They right. do the endorsements. They're on right. his Fighting Joe radio show. Marty Jewell was just on there last week. So, and I think Kat's question is the one that everyone wants to know. And, and I think we assume what the answer is because you, you say separated from all that, separated from that, these things. But that's really the, the question as a Black woman. It's like, how much can we really separate this? And, and what does that mean for me as a Black woman and my value? And that's why I bring these these conversations into the room, because it's really important, especially in the political world. It's hard for me to, to gather and organize Black women because they look at the larger political scheme, and it's like, why would I come in this world? And that's what I'm trying to, to break, because we need more Black women and advocates, voices all around to, to be involved. And But I appreciate your honesty, and being here, that's a hard question, mm-hmm. and especially knowing our thoughts and our bias towards that, which is one in line with the law and values and morals, but I appreciate that. Let's move on because that's a charged topic.
3: Yeah, yeah. So, I'm really curious, who are y'all's contemporary political role models? Don't bring out the MLKs or the Rosa Parks and everything. <laughs> who now inspires you
1: politically? President Obama. Say why. Well, he used a Because grass... he's super
0: safe too, but go ahead. I'm going to let you go. He used go a though.
1: grassroots effort to become president of the United States. And he didn't always win his battles politically. I think he lost a couple, but he kept fighting. And he ended up being president not once, but twice. And a great role model for our youth. And as far as um, leadership abilities, uh, I have to go to, um, in addition to President Obama, another great role model for me was just General Powell.
3: General you know, Colin Powell?
1: Yes. Okay. When I was a brand new second no, first lieutenant in the United States Army. I see this general on TV while I was participating in this, this operation called Operation Just Cause. He was that, my role model from, from then forward, and I wanted to be just like him. I wanted to be a, uh, a leader that our youth can look up to. And um, it's funny, ironic. I just had a conversation with my son. He said, Dad, I want to be like you. I want, he's a brand new second lieutenant, United States Army, my son is. He said, I want to retire, Dad, not as a colonel, I want to retire as a general. And then when I retire, I want to do what you're doing now, run for political office. So um, That's I'm, inspiring. Thank you.
3: Very nice and sweet. So who are your political role, contemporary political role models, Colette? Well, he reached back a little. So I'm going to reach back a little and then
5: also do something a little more timely. So reaching back about the same uh, generation as General Colin Powell is a woman named Constance Baker Motley. And she was one of the unsung black female lawyers who helped, not helped, who worked with Oliver Hill, Spotswood Robinson, who used to live um, right around Virginia Union, who eventually became a judge. And so when you look at pictures of the NAACP legal team in the 50s and 60s, you see these gentlemen. You rarely see Constant Baker Motley's picture in there. And that, that is a shame. She should be known as well as the men.
0: I appreciate you giving us some education and teaching more about black women. So
5: for her to have become a lawyer in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and eventually she was recognized and became a judge. But, you know, Oliver Hill has a courthouse named after him. Spotswood Robinson became a federal judge. People don't know Constance Baker Motley. People don't know Irene Johns. Mm -hmm. Uh, Irene um, Young people don't know Barbara Johns people don't know the women people don't know Fannie Lou Hamer I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired people just don't don't know know. start your own party (laughs) (laughs) y'all people just don't know and I I, I'm going to probably misphrase this but what those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it exactly if we don't know about our own role models and the people who have brought us this far how can we stand on their shoulders and 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 see farther and go farther so
0: but today
5: but today it would be and i i am not going to get all these women's names right uh trayvon martin's mom mm. eric garner's mom um any mother whose child was taken from her and who is still fighting who is not willing to you know just have the funeral and a few words from people and then sink back into an anonymous state. These women are still out there fighting, whether through Black Lives Matter or through their own foundations, and they are not letting America forget what America did to their children.
0: What about Princess Planding? Marcus David Peter's sister, who's out there fighting mm-hmm. justice and reformation? Is she one of your contemporary heroes? Yes, she would be. She would be, because she is fighting, and I understand I have
5: never met her, Um, and I don't know that she would ever want to meet me or anyone from the Commonwealth's Attorney's Office. I
0: think if there was a change to like, I, I, you know, I, I appreciate you bringing those women to the table, but I, I do want to challenge you a bit on that office and, and your, your power over what those women are fighting for and what your position can really do for a bring it home to Richmond. We have we have our Trayvon Martin. Marcus David Peters was that person. And I know we can definitely disagree on this, but as a mental health worker, as someone I, I don't want to let Richmond off the hook that that was a case that. It deserved. And if we're going to lift up the black women that are fighting for the men that are shot by the police, then we need to also lift up Princess Blanding on that.
3: So as policy director of Marijuana Justice Virginia, a new nonprofit working toward the equitable legalization of marijuana, I'm really I'm seeing a lot in the headlines around the attorney general calling for decriminalization. Majority of Americans want marijuana to be legal and accessible, recreational and medically. So it's a really simple question. Will your office stop prosecuting marijuana cases in Richmond?
1: I support decriminalization of marijuana. Uh... Marijuana. Although I do really want to take a look, and I said this the other day, I, I really want to take a look at those states that have legalized marijuana and uh, see uh, how or if any negative, if there has been any negative uh, impact as a result of legalizing marijuana in those states, especially as it relates to youth and crimes committed by youth, where there's been increased uh, cases where we have youth um, under the influence of that particular drug versus alcohol and other issues.
3: So you're saying that you would just need to have more research on like the efficacy and safety of legalization before you would decide to stop prosecuting?
1: Well, when you say stop prosecuting... Um, to
3: not prosecute if you were to take over the as,
1: as Colette uh, mentioned the other day, it's not a priority. If that's what you mean. no.
0: we're asking if you will say yes or no. We're asking for a commitment on this. But if you, if it's not a priority, it's still a, an opportunity to do that. So are you open to committing to hold, to if constituents want to hold you accountable for not prosecuting marijuana if you were elected, could you commit to that right now?
1: I can commit to not making it a priority. Okay.
5: Same answer. He's he's got my answer from the last, um, <laughs> the last from the last meeting we were both in. We yep. so um, yes, that that is what I said. Obviously, uh, marijuana is low on the priority of crimes that happen in Richmond. We are already at our 32, 32nd homicide in the city, um, halfway through the year. So um, I will tell your listeners that if it is a first offense and um, if they do community service and um, go to a substance abuse class, the marijuana charge is dismissed. They can get it expunged. But at this point, legally, marijuana is illegal in Virginia. And I was with a group of um, men yesterday and someone said, oh, I thought marijuana was legal in Virginia. It's like, no, marijuana is still legal. And for a lot of your listeners, let me tell you, marijuana is considered under the federal drug uh, controlled drug act to be at the same level as heroin. It Which is, we
3: know is scientifically like it's not, ridiculous. Yeah, it it's is ridiculous. ridiculous. Yeah. It's
5: just ridiculous. Every, anybody knows that. And there's a whole history as to why marijuana got placed as a. Um, Schedule one drug. Yeah, that's steeped in
3: racism and classism and white supremacy and those things.
5: um, You know, cocaine is Schedule two, marijuana Schedule one, so that we understand that that's ridiculous. And I will say and make a bet with your listeners that I believe within the next five years, the General Assembly, which is the only group not my office, but the only group that can make marijuana illegal will
4: legalize marijuana.
0: Ashley, do you have any idea about how often or a sense of how often Richmond is prosecuting marijuana cases?
4: I mean, I get a fair bit of marijuana cases. I think my bigger concern, and, and Colette's right, they, they do... I don't think I've ever been offered jail time on a marijuana case, a simple marijuana case. However, my bigger concern is, you know, they call marijuana a gateway drug, but I see it as a gateway for the police to search because there's very bad law that just the smell of marijuana allows police to search. And so very often as I'm watching body cam, they'll say to each other, oh, you smell marijuana white. And then there's no marijuana found in the car. And that's obviously nothing that you guys can do because that has to do with the legislature. Mm -hmm. However, I do want to know the use of marijuana as a gateway to other prosecutions. Right. As either serious gun charges drug charges or just general harassment of the populace what you all would do in your relationship to the police to if it is going to be such a low priority then if you would convey that try to work with the police chief to say we really don't need to be investigating marijuana i don't really want to prosecute it you guys shouldn't be wasting your time on this if there would be a collaboration there or what you would do about the bigger effects of marijuana still being illegal
0: Especially here in Richmond, that we know from the data that Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project is doing is that the field interviews, the stopping, the stop and frisk of our Richmond police officers are disproportionately affecting black and brown comm- I mean, at a ridiculous rate, right? So this gateway of entering in the criminal justice system is exactly the biggest concern around marijuana prosecution, not the jail time. So I like that question a lot about working with the police.
1: I think we should work with the police and and see if we can get on the same page as far as uh, racial as bias cuz oh,
0: that's what it is right
1: uh it, and that's unfortunate but you're right if you look at the statistics, it does appear as if marijuana prosecution, for example, impacts more minorities, African-Americans in specific. Because
0: even the investigation means now I'm going to drug court, maybe I'm paying fines. I mean, it's still a, a huge disruption License. in people's lives, right? right? And it's an economic issue now because they're taken off from work. So it's not just about jail time as yeah. well.
3: So when it says like a low priority, it's a low right. priority for who? Right. <laughs> right.
5: So here, here is what I want to offer as Commonwealth's attorney. Um There is something called a referral program.
0: Oh, good. I meant to ask you about this. Uh, Good. Okay, great. We're on the same page.
5: Okay. So, So there is a referral program that's being used in some... Fairfax? At least one county. Well, I, I don't know about Fairfax. I know about Augusta County uh, using it, and the way it is used for marijuana for SOL. Although, luckily, Chelsea, as you and I have spoken about, every all listeners need to know that you can no longer have your license suspended for unpaid uh, court fines and costs. Uh, if that's the sole reason that your license is suspended, you need to go to DMV to figure that to to get that cleared up. But but. Uh, what my referral program would do is for low level offenses like marijuana, um, alcohol, underage alcohol possession, um, trespass, uh, low level misdemeanors that bring people into court multiple times perhaps and disrupt their schooling, they're providing for their family by their job, they're making it difficult to get to court because they don't have a car, so they got to get to the Mm -hmm. bus, and then Mm -hmm. they're late for court, so then there's a failure to appear, Mm -hmm. and now they've got that on top of the uh, underlying charge, is to work with the new police chief, Will Smith, and have a referral program for certain low-level Uh, misdemeanor offenses, Mm -hmm. so that when a police officer comes in contact with you, instead of writing you a summons Mm -hmm. or giving you a warrant, Mm -hmm. you get a referral slip to either someone in the Division of Adult Probation for the city or the Mm -hmm. police department or my office, and you speak with that person, you do community service because you weren't supposed to be doing the trespass, you weren't supposed to be smoking marijuana, whatever, and you never come to court. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. therefore, you don't even get to the point where you have to have something or there's anything on your record you have no record and so Great. that is what i would like to institute as a referral program yep. for low-level misdemeanor charges
0: really quickly alex anything to say on that if you support or do you know about the referral program um just finding out about it okay so we'll maybe hear a little bit from that before we wrap up today we're gonna jump into what's your privilege What's Your Privilege is a segment of our show where we invite our guests to talk about what is their privilege that they use to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. And because of time today, we're only going to hear from our candidates. Alex would love to hear from you first.
1: What is your privilege? Well, unlike um, many of the um, individuals that come before the court, uh, African-American males, youth, uh, as well as adults, many of them have come from uh, fatherless homes, um, I came from a home where my dad was gone a lot, and I still was able to um, prevail, um, to include at University of Virginia, where a counselor told me I would most likely fail, then go on to law school, and then go on to do great things, practice law for over 30 years, uh, become a colonel in the United States Army and Army Reserves, been a defense attorney, prosecutor.
0: And how do you use that to disrupt the myth of white supremacy?
1: It is possible to be successful through education, hard work, determination, and faith.
0: So, existing and being successful is your disruption. Very nice. All
5: right. Um, Same thing for me. The fact that I grew up with parents who uh, demanded excellence um, and told me that in order to be taken half as seriously, you have to work twice as hard. Mm. Um, I knew. That my being successful, my being educated was not only a protection for me and my community and my family, but was also kind of a spit in the eye at, at the institutions and people who didn't want to see me succeed.
0: Exactly. And so
5: every time that I walk into a courtroom as the Commonwealth's attorney for the city of Richmond, nobody is going to be disrespectful.
0: Boom. Boom. Very nice. Okay, so really quickly, anything that you all want to shout out that's coming up? I know tomorrow, RCDC is having another forum where people can find you 630 at Martin Luther King Middle School.
5: So you all may be aware that uh, my predecessor, Michael Herring, um, and uh, our project specialist, Amon Shabazz, uh, and another uh, person wrote a paper called Beyond Containment that I believe is on the City of Richmond website, and it's Mm -hmm. certainly available. And that uh, lists Five or six, maybe eight issues that negatively impact people of color in our community. So rather than just end with that paper, there are going to be a series of discussions with members of the community with stakeholders, so we can all be in the same room. So if your listeners would put the date of Friday, September twenty seventh at 2pm at Virginia Union's Claude Perkins Living and Learning Center, the first session will be entitled The Collision at the Intersection of Criminal Justice and
1: Poverty.
0: All right. Sounds good. Anything, Alex?
1: Yes, I've been invited to the same event, and I encourage everybody to attend. But also, right around the corner, August 8th and August 10th, there you go. the Democratic primary. We need our folks to come out and vote. On the 8th, is only from 6 to 7.30, and on the 10th, it's on from 10.30 to 1.30 p.m., and they can only vote at two places, right. Southside Community yeah. Center and the main library on Franklin Street.
0: Great. Anything from Justice Forward, Ashley?
4: Uh, We have an event in Northern Virginia on August 21st. If anyone's around and interested, it's just a a social event to kind of get everyone back in the season. And then moving in from August to September, we're actually starting our summer lobbying push. We have seven priorities and bills that we're planning to push forward as well as supporting discovery reform, bail reform that other agencies are working on. So we'll have that up on our our website, which is justiceforwardva.com. And so those are our upcoming events right now.
0: And And you all are all over social media on Facebook too as well.
4: Facebook, we're now on Twitter. So there's tons of ways to get in touch with us but if anyone's interested in our summer lobbying push you don't have to have any experience we're just trying to form some relationships with our legislators and really get them on board for criminal justice reform
0: thanks so much for being here okay i want to thank everyone for being here this was a this was a good one i appreciate everyone's honesty your time this morning and your commitment to our city that's the the big part is that we're all here for a better richmond thanks to you guys so much thank you thank you
3: john yeah.
5: great today gotta be great don't Straight to my face
3: all right, so that was that oh, was a deep conversation. You no, know,
0: I'm so charged. Like, it took so much out of me to not just, like, fall in the ground. There
3: were some <laughs> egregious things said. Egregious. word <laughs> of the day.
0: <laughs> Seriously. Now, egregious to me and something we didn't touch on, uh, Colin Powell.
3: Yeah, yeah. And the fact that what was stated was that Alex Taylor saw Colin Powell on television and then automatically a role model, you know, which right. talks a lot about representation. Yes. And just who we have in the media, who we right. have. As, as black politicians I in did. this country and who is seen as like progressive or even even someone to follow, really.
0: Colin Powell? Yeah. Yeah. OK. Yeah. I, I, again. I, yeah. I,
3: and then the other uh, the other response with McEachin, Colette McEachin, was the mothers of the victims of police shootings. Yo. Without the acknowledgement that Princess Blanding yeah. and the family of Marcus David Peters. Yeah. And that we is, just talked about that. It mm-hmm. was I was like,
0: I, I I'm I, I'm confused homegirl like this wasn't the the time to bring up your best talking point about the mothers and, and the victims and so I'm just like that That was a lot to me a shout out to Ashley and Justice Forward came up with the facts yes yes. Yeah. and the fact that we do still have we got police officers punching people in the face in the Commonwealth Attorney's Office as it is right now is not prosecuting that's what's been going on since 2005 with Mike Herring's office and it didn't sound like too much was going to change but didn't sound like Alex was going to change too much either I'm not really sure
3: yeah I have big questions on who they really are focusing on when they're thinking about their duties of their role and justice Right. And and, and the power that they have, too, the power to change the culture in the office of the Commonwealth attorney, mm-hmm. the power that they have with public relations, the power mm-hmm. that they have with their relationship with the police. And
0: let's just go back to their job is to uphold the Constitution. It's nothing about victims. That's what Ashley was really telling us. It's not about victims. This is about the Constitution and what justice really is. So this was such a great conversation. I wish we had more time to talk about it. But I hope candidates come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah me too if they dare if they dare well this has been an, an amazing episode thanks so much Rebecca for joining us for having me and we'll catch y'all later I'm from the <laughs> the
1: Odyssey, the